this way comes something Something different Something different Something different This way comes something Something different Something different Welcome to the People in Your Neighborhood edition of Something Different This Way Comes. I'm Heather McLeod. And today I'm talking with Charlotte Robinson, president of the Thunder Bay Chamber of Commerce. Ever since the last municipal election, Charlotte and the Chamber have been lobbying for zoning changes to help make Thunder Bay neighborhoods more dense, more walkable, and mixed income. And you know what? I promise you she's going to make policy and zoning really interesting. It's it's hugely important. In fact, all of these things, dense, walkable, mixed-income communities, these are all community traits that are frequently cited by the scientists looking at, at how to fix our climate crisis and, and how to make us more resilient in the face of the climate change already going on and contribute less to more climate change that might yet come. So there are other cities around the world that are making changes in, in their building standards and their zoning and infrastructure and, and their urban forestry management to transition to the carbon-neutral future we need. Seth Klein, in his keynote speech at Lakehead University's Research and Innovation Week just recently, he mentioned what Vancouver has done in the last two years. So I, I went and checked that out, and wow, like... They're building neighborhood energy systems to make heating and cooling more affordable to all and more energy efficient. They're they're doing infrastructure change so they're more prepared for extreme weather events like, oh my gosh, the ones we've been having. They've got local sustainable energy production going on and food production and and they're helping cozy more people into spaces so there's less commuting, there's, there's more active options that are more attractive to more people. There's a lot of good things happening fast in Vancouver, in Toronto and Halifax, all over the place. And here in Thunder Bay on March 22nd, new zoning bylaws that the Chamber had championed were approved in principle. So we're going to hear all about them in this conversation with Charlotte Robinson. I got to hear Sharla speak a few weeks ago also about how Thunder Bay businesses were impacted by the pandemic, by the shutdowns and the supply chain challenges over the last few years. And I also was really excited to get this opportunity to, to get her thoughts on how to build a stronger, more resilient business community and, and economy now in Thunder Bay. So I'm so delighted to share this conversation with you. Sharla grew up in Dryden. She moved to Thunder Bay to study business at Confederation College, and she's lived in Thunder Bay now for nearly 30 years. She commuted to work briefly at Queen's Park, followed by a few years at Parliament Hill. Now, as president of Thunder Bay Chamber of Commerce, Charlotte's unwavering focus is supporting business here in the city so we can prosper. Charlotte wades fearlessly into conversations that would daunt others, conversations about taxes (laughs) policies. She is an expert at turning a room full of strangers into a positive and connected community. And further, the Chamber helps engage the people of Thunder Bay to better know and support our local businesses. She is a a bi-local guru. So, here is our conversation. Welcome to Something different this way comes. Thank you. So really pleased to have you here. Um, so I'm going to pick your brains because you are one of my treasure troves of people who looks closely and pays attention to how our community is growing when it comes to business. Um, so why do you think local business is important 
to Thunder Bay's resilience and, and prosperity? Well, really, local business is the lifeblood of a community. Uh, when, when you shop with a local business, or what we call choosing T-Bay first, you're supporting the creation of jobs for friends and family. You're helping to support local roads and services through taxes you know, to the municipality. Um, and you're assisting hundreds of local charities, sporting groups, art organizations that those businesses support every year. So when a local business fails, all of those pieces kind of, you know, feel that, feel that loss. And when a local business succeeds and grows, jobs, taxes, charitable organizations, they all benefit. So, you know, choosing T-Bay First really does provide a, a money-back guarantee for all of us because the money comes back to us in, in so many positive ways. I also think of it as, as like a front line. Like often so many people start up a business in their home community because they see something they can do for that community and they really know how to how to fit exactly in the hole that's that's there. Absolutely. There's an adaptation capacity in in, in small business. Yeah, there really is. And and because small business can, you know, pivot and change to the market a little bit easier than than a larger operation, you know, it does allow them to to find those niche pieces where they can say, hey, we, we don't have this here. Why don't we look at that? So yeah, definitely uh, lots of benefits for small business. But one of the ways that we talk about it, when people talk about business, they um, like the policymakers and so on, they say that that small business or even micro business, like ones with just a few employees, um, they're the engine of the economy and they have numbers behind that. So so like how many people work for small businesses or run small? How much of our economy do they really represent? Well, um, I don't actually I didn't actually pull up those stats. But what I do know is uh, sort of the general rule of thumb is that small business now, of course, the government defines that as a business with less than 100 employees. Um, So so it's actually what some of us would think of as rather big. But small business is about 80 percent of the businesses. So even in the chamber membership, about 80% of our members are small business. Now, we define small business as, you know, small business, like 25, 50 employees would be considered a large business for us. So, you know, the majority of our members are small businesses with less than, you know, 30 or so employees. What are the additional challenges? Like when we have a time, a stressful time, like COVID was, what are the additional challenges that might be harder for a smaller business to get through than a bigger one? Well, first of all, is uh, is basically capital. You know, smaller businesses don't have as much uh, as much savings, right? They they you know potentially, uh, depending on how long they've been in business, have uh, a lot of loans that they're they're working to pay off, um, or they have uh, you know overhead costs that uh, that they don't have any control over um, because they are smaller businesses. They're you know maybe have a little less control. So yeah, it makes it uh, it makes it really challenging. And and certainly the cash flow piece was I think the thing that I heard the most from small businesses during COVID that uh, they were they were literally sometimes pulling money out of their retirement savings. Um, even if they had already paid off their house mortgage, were putting on another mortgage on their house in order to get cash to keep the business going because there wasn't cash coming in. So, you know, 
Um, it's it's such a, a you know vital piece to be able to have that regular cash coming in for a small business so much more than a large business that generally has uh, you know a balance sheet with a big bank account kind of sitting there. The rainy day fund. A lot of small businesses don't have a, a very large rainy day fund. What do you think motivates a lot of people to get into business? Like you see business. I'm watching my kids watch TV, and whenever a business person comes on, there's some kind of like profit-oriented, uh, really looking for opportunities to exploit people. And I don't think of that as, as the people I see choosing to go into business. Like, what, what do you think of it as? Yeah, no, I mean, it, 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 is, it is unfortunate that, uh, that many times business people are portrayed as self-serving. And the reality is that, uh, that entrepreneurs have a, have a spirit. They have a, a desire to, to fix things, to, 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 to fill the gap, to find the niche, to you know, help their local community, to, to, to provide jobs for, for people in, that they know. So um, definitely that, uh, that creativity, that innovation, that, uh, and sometimes, you know, that sort of free spirit, right? Not wanting to, ha- you know, wanting to have control over their own destiny, that, that feeling of agency as to I'm going to build the life that I want my way. And if I fail, I fail because of my choices, not because somebody else is imposing their rules or decisions on me. And, and sometimes we actually see, um, especially over the last, say, 10 or 15 years with the, you know, the decline in forestry and a lot of people lost their jobs, some of those people actually decided to go into business because of that. They didn't want to go back and work for somebody else. They wanted to take control over their own destiny. And that's what led them to start up a business or, or, or partner with an existing business um, because they wanted to have a little more, a more say in you know, how they spend their days. And, and it, they're really committed. Like that what you're describing, stressors come along and you're having to like turn to your own retirement savings or the equity you've managed to build up in the value of your home just to keep the doors open. That's commitment to these visions. It really is. It really is. And I, again, I think that, uh, you know, that misconception that they're, that it's all about, it's all about me. Um, you know, the, the rich business owner. I mean, that is, that is in most cases, not the case. Um, and, uh, and certainly it's unfortunate that, uh, that media tends to try to pit that us versus them, right? Sort of, uh, you know, the, the big bad business people, whereas in reality, in many cases, you know, that's, that's, that's totally opposite of what they are. So if I'm going into a local business, and I see they have something that maybe I could check and see the going price on on some other online distance source, I could probably have good confidence that the price they give is a fair representation of what it took for them to put it there right handy in my community. Absolutely. Absolutely. And yes, it, it often does cost more to shop local, but the return on that is, is there for you, right? If something goes wrong with what you bought, what are you going to do, right? If it doesn't fit, if it breaks quickly, if, you know, if something happens, you can go back and talk to that local business owner and often they, they will try to help you fix it. Oh, well, well, you know, we'll, we'll work with the manufacturer or, you know, they have better refund policies or that sort of thing. Um, and you know that even though you're paying a little bit more, all that money is coming back. It's coming back through all those things I mentioned, the taxes, the support of like, who's, who's supporting your kid's hockey team or your daughter's dance club. It's not the big Amazons of the world. (laughs) I mean, when did Amazon support any local groups? Right. So 
thinking of all those returns on, on that investment, yeah, you might pay a little bit more. And if you have that flexibility to be able to pay that a little bit more and, you know, you're not that price sensitive, then it's certainly something that uh, th- that that money will come back to you in so many ways. So buy less, maybe, so you can afford mm-hmm. to buy better. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. I'm getting this picture of, of why they say communities that have a really healthy local business, lots of buy local options and, and small community uh, businesses are more resilient. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a way for us to to really give each other security. Yes, definitely. And again, those, you know, when when your son or daughter needs that first job, I don't know about you, but, you know, it's like, okay, who do I know that owns a small business that I can say, okay, you know, tell them that, you know, you're my daughter, you're my son, they'll give you, you know, a chance, right? They'll, They'll give you that first leg up versus you know, perhaps uh, a large business that, oh, well, you know, employees come, employees go. It's not the same relationship as well. So how has the business community of Thunder Bay changed? I know in our heads and in the way we talk about ourselves, we're still an extractive industry place. We've got mining, we've got forestry, we've got manufacturing, you know, the big mills. Um, And now we've got the universities and the college. We've got a bit of that going on. But but that, to me, I don't feel like it's very current. Like, what, what do you see as changes? Or how would you describe Thunder Bay now as, as a place where people work and live and, and, uh, and do business? Well, certainly, as you mentioned, natural resources continue to be a staple of our economy. Um, and in particular, uh, the mining opportunities have, are growing significantly. I mean, we've got six operating mines in the region producing gold and palladium. We've got about 850 Thunder Bay residents that that go to the mines in the region to work. So they're in and out, you know, maybe they're there for 10 days, they're home for 10 days. And we've got thousands that are employed by about 400 service and supply companies that are helping to support those mining operations. And we know that there are, you know, over a dozen other mines in the region that are in that exploration development stage. So those numbers are going to continue to rise. Um, but then there's also sort of the, the government staples of our economy, which are actually a huge part of uh, our workforce, education, health sciences, government services. That represents about 15,000 people in Thunder Bay that are employed in those, in those businesses. So that's about a quarter of the total workforce. So that's a really important sector of our economy and kind of, kind of serves as a, as a baseline stability, right? Because you know... You know, especially, you know, as things were shutting down, those things were still operating. Health services were still operating. The government services folks were all still working. The school boards were offering, working in different ways. But you have to keep things going, right? So that serves as a bit of a backbone. But then we've got all the, you know, retail, hospitality, tourism, service-based businesses, construction, you know, all of those things that are significant employers. Maybe they're not employing thousands of people in each employ, you know, in each business, but that really adds up. Um, if you look at the, you know, the, the, the labor force by industry, retail is about 6,500 people that work in retail in Thunder Bay, right? Real estate, 700 and some people, professional services. So like, you know, the, the architects, the, the, the lawyers, the accountants, those kinds, that's almost 3000 people. So all of those different things make up 
the the structure of of our community and a lot of, you know a lot of those are small businesses you know a small lawyer's office with you know two or three people a small accounting firm with 10 people a small um, architect with you know 15 people those are all small businesses that are really contributing to you know our economy and are so important because all the big guys need that right like the mines still need architects and accountants and lawyers and like the big businesses need the small businesses too so yeah it's it's a it's a really interesting mix and it is changing right i mean it is changing we are seeing more entrepreneurial spirit um we are seeing more um restaurants definitely small retailers um kind of home base turning to being more at places like the Goods and Co. Market, you know, more of those those maker-type businesses. We're starting to see a lot more of those. So it's kind of an exciting time to see, and I'm, I'm really excited to see how that continues to grow as, you know, hopefully COVID uh, impacts uh, decline and, uh, and businesses sort of adjust to the new, whatever the new normal will be. Was there a learning curve for all the, the organizations, like the chamber is an organization that works to support business owners, um, but there's other levels of policy development and grant providers and, and just research. Was there a bit of a learning curve through how COVID hit businesses on, 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 on what business is and, and how it works? Yeah, well, that you noticed. You mean learning curve for us as an organization, or you mean a learning curve for the businesses? You know what? Do one and then the other. I'd like to know what people learned. Yeah, so for us, certainly, I think the the learning curve was that um, there were so many things that that people didn't understand what the programs were. So we turned into as the chamber the information hub. For the first few months, there was literally, it seemed like every two or three days, there was a new government program coming out. Oh, first there's, you know, there's the SIBA loans system, and there was all the criteria as to who was able to get that and how that worked. And then there was a wage subsidy that was only 10%. And then there was a wage subsidy that was expanded to 75%. And then there was rental programs. And then that rental program changed. And so we put together a resource hub and we were keeping track every day of what was happening, posting it, doing little videos or short posts to say, this is what this really means. Like, here's what you need to know from the six pages they just announced. Here's what you really need to know in bullet form. And then talking to the experts, like the accountants, bringing in them to say, okay, explain to folks what documentation do they need to be keeping, help people understand maybe how they should make decisions because of the way the programs are funded. So yeah, that was a huge, uh, a huge piece for us. And then also needing to get a feel for what that local impact was, because it was really hard to tell because we were all at home, right? You couldn't go walking about and talk to retailers or restaurants because you, you were told to stay home. So You know, that's when we worked with the Northern Policy Institute, the Economic Development Commission, North Superior Workforce Planning Board to put out a survey. And we started surveying businesses every month so that we could get a feel for what was really happening at the local level compared to the national data. So so that was a a real change of, uh, of, of how the chamber normally operates. I mean, everybody thinks the chamber is just about events. We couldn't have events anymore, right? So that whole thing had to change too, right? Um, and then for businesses, I think it was really, and then finding those gaps. It's like, okay, great. It's great that you're giving me a wage subsidy, but I just had to, I had to lay off five employees because we're closed. Like 
I can't afford to pay them to be at home, right? There's no money coming in. So a wage subsidy is lovely, except that I don't have any wages anymore, but I still have rent to pay. And so then, you know, working to right towards getting the rent programs and then how did they apply for the rent programs and then, you know, all those sorts of things. So, so yeah, there was, there was so much learning happening and, and very quick, like trying to disseminate the information quickly. And then of course you also had all of the changes in like health and safety rules, like for those businesses that were still operating. Okay. How do you keep going if you're not required to close or you're, or you're an essential business? How do you keep going and keep people safe? So so then it got into, you know, the barriers, the masks, the hand sanitizer, the separation, the daily screening, again, all of those pieces to try to help businesses navigate all of those things because nobody wants their staff to get sick. Nobody wants to be the the workplace where the workplace had to shut down because everybody got COVID, especially in the early days, right? So yeah, lots of learnings, lots of uh, trying to absorb the almost the fire hose of information and say, okay, this is what I need. Now I can move forward. Talk about that same application of what you're calling the entrepreneurial spirit saying, oh, here's what's changed. Here's what needs to be done. I can do it. I'm going to fill the gap. Like, thank you. I'm sure that made such a huge difference here for so many people. I hope so. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the early days were really hard because, I mean, we actually started phoning members to check in to say, how are you doing? What do you need? Like, and I mean, sometimes they were crying on the phone, like, I'm going to lose my business, I'm going to lose my house, like, because at first, there was so much uncertainty, and there wasn't programs, there there wasn't a guarantee that the government's got your back for the first couple of weeks. And so like, just heartbreaking, right? And then those businesses, like some businesses had literally just open, spring is kind of a start your business, right? We had a couple of, of businesses that had just opened and literally were just shut down again, saying, like, now what do I do, right? I just invested everything in opening this business thinking, you know, I had sort of a two or three year make, get my investment back and now there's nothing. So what do I do? But I'm not eligible for the programs because I haven't been in business for over a year, right? So yeah, lots of, uh, lots of hard conversations, lots of uh, very, you know, high anxiety and, and highly emotional uh, times for sure for, for so many businesses. And I, I think... I think about that, what you said earlier about how, you know, most policies and, and even statistic tracking mechanisms think of a small business as less than 100 employees. Uh, but you guys have learned uh, that it's important to distinguish between less than 25 and 25 to 100. Like that, that beginning time is a, is, a, is a key time. You don't usually start with a giant bunch of employees, uh, but a challenging time. You don't have the capital. You, you might have the loans. And you have people that you have real relationships with that are part of that business. Um, and it sounds like part of what, what the chamber leapt in to, to do was become almost the HR and accounting department that a larger company might have and, and do that sort of parsing of opportunity and risk and procedures and policies that your average, I just want to do something my community needs, small business. How, how could they know that? How would they find the time to do that? Yeah. So, so for me, that's a learning, like that's a learning I'm hoping that's got people talking going forward about what can we do differently to better support the beginnings of these really important parts of our communities and economy. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's so important. And you're right. I mean, those small businesses, I mean, one or two people working in your business, 
you're you're the bookkeeper you're the hr person you're the janitor you're the you know like you're everything you're the one doing that orders you're the one putting it on this on the shelves you're the one going to the bank i mean you're the one doing everything and so what do, what do i need to know right i've just found that all really encouraging but also it makes me want to keep my ear to the ground and hear what other changes might come out of this experience. Like what are some of the things you think might be helpful going forward so that next time we hit a challenge, whatever it might be, it's hopefully not going to be another pandemic, but another something that affects all of us in an unexpected sudden way. What could we have learned from COVID that would help us get through that challenge from a business structure point of view? It really reinforced the importance of supporting other businesses and working with other businesses, maybe competitors before, but now more cooperating competitors, cooperating, you know, more even with your competitors, because recognizing that, you know, there's a value to having that breadth of local operators in the community and so we certainly saw that like you know restaurants working together hotels working together to try to understand the situation and to try to share resources Uh, you know we saw a lot of that happening and then those businesses that that were open them trying to support businesses that maybe were you know, only had takeout, right? So then it's, you know, how can we support them? You know, we're open. So we're going to, we're going to order takeout from those businesses for our staff lunches. We're going to do things like that to try to support other businesses. So I think that, you know, there's always a silver lining. And I think that that community spirit and recognizing that we're all, we're all here to help each other really is something that will carry us through whatever lies ahead. And I hope that that, uh, that continues to grow. Yeah. That's another way where you're really building community. Like sometimes a crisis does help you see where your strengths are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Huh. I'm, I'm going to go to something else that, that I heard you say in a different conversation. You were talking um, about a month ago and you just mentioned in passing um, how challenges to the supply chain of, of recent months um, have, have maybe informed some local businesses or conversations that, that you've been parodied to. And I want to hear more. You just mentioned it in passing. But, but what can you tell me about supply chains and how that might impact or change the thinking of businesses here in our isolated community? We're so far from everybody else in so many ways. Yeah, the supply chain challenges. I mean, this is a challenge that's happening globally right now, right? This is, again, sort of, you know, flowing out of the pandemic out of labor shortages around the the world and now uh, has been exacerbated by some of the political conflict, you know, the Russia-Ukraine situation. And I mean, I I think that that what we're starting to see here is um, that understanding that maybe looking at who our suppliers are and whether there's an opportunity to use more smaller Canadian suppliers versus the large multinationals or even building some some supply chain networks maybe more strongly in the community that that weren't there before I mean one of the examples I think of the food banks right so they've got the RFDA and they really do work together to all make sure that they're getting the most efficient way to get food for food security issues Rather than everybody doing their own thing, they've figured out that it, it works better to, to work together. I see that a little bit more now, too, with 
with some of the, uh, the the local agricultural sector and you know local grocers and uh, you know the country market is trying to to better develop supply chains for local food so that it is easier to support the local farmers. It's easier to ensure that those products are available in a way that can serve the consumer where they are, right? Versus, oh, well, you're going to have to go to X on Saturday, and that's the only place you can get whatever. You know, now you're seeing things that maybe only used to be at the market in local retail stores, right? So yeah, different, uh, different things like that, I think. Um, we're also starting to see some opportunities with uh, with some small manufacturing i mean think about i don't know 10 years ago did we have any breweries did we have any coffee roasters you know now we've got a couple of hot sauce makers now we've got you know our own you know local dairy that was a job right um a lot of yeah. those the first people be in business yeah um just talking to them the the, the things that you wouldn't think of that they had yeah. to kind of navigate in order to get up in business. And then once they had navigated it, yeah. the generosity to help other people move into their yeah. field as I mean, that's just from stories of people I chat with and it's, it, it's amazing to me and wonderful to see. It is. Yeah. So, so, I mean, there, you know, those kinds of uh, that kind of approach, I think we're starting to see that a little bit more um, people wanting local products, but also recognizing from a supply challenge that, uh, you know, having those local products does actually make some of those supply chain issues a little bit easier. Now, we know not everything, you know, obviously, we, we don't build everything here. So we're going to have some things that, you know, you can't get a computer built here, right? So there's some things where, you know, you're, you're going to have to stay on on the national or the global supply chain. But finding those opportunities, right, and uh, and seeing how we can how we can support those. I mean, one of the other things that uh, you know, two other things that I wanted to highlight. Um, we've got a couple of companies here, like one that's just starting up that's uh, that's manufacturing isolation gowns, right? So they're actually sewing isolation gowns here, and that's come out of COVID because Ontario made a specific effort to say we want to start manufacturing some of these things here that we normally were getting from you know, China or whatever. And so there's actually a company that's starting now. They're waiting for some of the machinery to come in and they're going to be manufacturing those things here for a company in the Toronto area, right? Um, Is that tied to, uh, like when you said the government said, was there money in a program out there that's trying to encourage more? um... Yeah, the Ontario government has set up a whole system trying to support more uh, Ontario manufacturing. Um, And there's been some different funding programs to help with that. And so, you know, smart entrepreneurs from here saying, hey, I see that, you know, well, Bombardier, right, building the ventilators, you know, they were they were helping to build parts for ventilators that were being put together in the Toronto area. And now we've got other businesses here that are looking, you know, seeing those opportunities and saying, hey, why couldn't we pivot a little bit and use these things uh, to, to meet these needs? You've got, uh, you know, apparel company on Galley here, right? And a lot of businesses now that maybe used to get their T-shirts from somewhere else, right? They're saying, hey, look what this great local apparel company is doing. We're going to get our apparel from them instead of ordering the fruit on fruit of the loom 
standard stuff, right? So there's always opportunities. And uh, that's one of the things entrepreneurs are always, they seem to be keen to be looking for, for those opportunities. All right. I, now, now I want to talk, I'm going to pivot and talk about what I, what I introduced you to talk about, which was these changes to the bylaws that the chamber so actively supported to allow us to tuck more people in and maybe use some blocks, neighborhoods, already built buildings differently. Um, tell me about that. Where, where did that idea start from and, and, and why are you guys behind it? What excites you about this? Oh, we're super excited about this. We've been working on uh, the zoning bylaw probably since uh, 2018 um, when the city had their official plan process happening. We knew that as soon as the official plan was approved, the next step was to do a zoning review. So we saw that as a sort of a once in a decade opportunity to really sort of blow up the zoning that we currently have, which was built, you know, was was written in the, the 60s and the 70s and was built for a different time. And, you know, really modernize it to the kind of community that we really need to have moving forward. So we focused on the pillars of a walkable, mixed-use, mixed-income neighborhoods because we know not only does that make for better places to live, but it also leads to increased connections between neighbors, provides opportunities for more physical activity if you're able to walk places, safer streets, and that sort of greater sense of pride and identity. So, so many benefits to the zoning changes that we proposed Um and so we're actually really excited because it really is going to be transformational over the coming, you know, 10 to 20 years. We're really going to start to see a change to the landscape of Thunder Bay because zoning really is what you can build where and what you can do in those buildings. It's really the backbone of everything development in the community. And so we're really excited that uh, that this zoning um, addresses some of the challenges that we've had previously with very, very narrowly defined zoning. I mean, we actually had a zoning criteria for video stores. There was like, this building can only be a video store, right? This building can only be a financial services. And you can imagine how now as businesses are looking for locations, etc., if the building isn't zoned right, it's a whole other level of work and time and, and money to get it rezoned. There's a whole process and it's very expensive and very time consuming. And so we were proposing to, to really open things up to make more flexible zoning from a commercial perspective, as well as uh, also from, you know, recognizing the residential piece where we do need to increase our density. And so this zoning allows pretty much any house that was previously defined as a single family dwelling can now have multiple homes in it, whether that's by adding a backyard home if you if you have the right amount of lot or whether that's turning it into upstairs, downstairs units. Those are all things that will help with our affordability crisis and help to increase the density in uh, in our communities. So we're really excited to see to see that happening because we know that we're, we're bringing in lots of international students, but if they have nowhere to live that they can afford, they're not going to stay here. They're going to go somewhere else. And we really want them to stay here. We want them to feel comfortable. We need that affordable housing so that folks can really develop, develop their lives here after they finish that educational pursuit. So yeah, really, uh, really excited to see the zoning and uh, so many, so many positive things that we believe will come out of this over the next 10 to 20 years. You also mentioned, um, that more walkable, more neighborhoody communities would, would be transformational. So if I imagine a neighborhood 
that's really built as a 50 style suburb, right? They don't have a little walk to it shopping area. Uh, how might these changes in zoning allow people to bring services close to where they live? Like what, what might we see there? Yeah, so that's one of the pieces that we have really pushed forward and we're really excited about the addition of what's called an urban mixed use zone. So this provides flexibility that would encourage small scale pedestrian oriented businesses within an established neighborhood. So we know that there are neighborhoods in the community there where you literally there is no business in sight. You can't walk anywhere to get a bag of milk or to buy a cup of coffee or to get your hair cut or anything. You have to get in the car and you have to drive somewhere else. So this urban mixed use zone will actually allow a change to what maybe used to be defined as a residential only space to become a a pedestrian oriented type of business. We're really excited about that because it will open up those opportunities so that now that the challenge will be addressing the process, again, the zoning application process, the rezoning process. So that's the next step is to change the process So that if someone wants to do this, again, you're probably not well healed with a whole bunch of money to go through a long zoning process that costs a lot of money in order to make this change. If all you want to do is is maybe add a little, put a little corner store in your house because there's no corner store, right? Now that's the next step. We'll be working with council and Min to change the process so that it becomes simpler and less time consuming and less expensive for those businesses to be able to open up. So really excited to see that and a hopeful that that will help to alleviate some of these business deserts that we have, you know, around uh, around our, our neighborhoods. The other thing that makes me think of is another thing you mentioned earlier, um, the work at home potential, right? So now that uh, COVID illuminated how many professions can do uh, a mixed uh, work at home or can be completely done at home, maybe we'll see people choosing to move here. And, and if I'm moving here from Toronto, I moved here from Montreal, Right. And I used to live in Toronto and Calgary and all sorts of places where um, public transit, walkable businesses, they were just most neighborhoods had them. So if we have more neighborhoods that um, can fit more people, first of all, and, and more neighborhoods that can accommodate someone who's not grown up driving everywhere, that doesn't expect to need a car, they expect to be able to get around to most things without one. Um, that to me sounds like a, a really positive development. Yeah, yeah, it's it's really transformational. Again, you know, the way that zoning was built in this city was built in the 70s. And in the 70s, it was all about put all the houses over here, and all the businesses over there. And that's, you know, we've, that's a failed experiment. And so we need, you know, this, this provides an opportunity to go back to more of that integrated lifestyle where yes, I, you know, I, I can walk to work, maybe I can walk to get myself some milk, or to buy a dress or, you know, meet some friends at a small neighborhood cafe, and I don't have to drive so much. And of course, that will help to also address not only our own personal needs for walkability, but also it's more efficient for the city, right? So it'll help with with our taxation, because we want more people to better utilize the infrastructure. And of course, from an environmental perspective, people aren't jumping in the car to drive to get a bag of milk every five minutes. Clearly, that's a, that's a positive thing as well. <laughs> you just made policy uh, watching sexy for me, Charla. Well done. <laughs> I didn't know there was so much positive news on the front of, of changes to municipal by- bylaws. That's pretty great. <laughs> Happy to be the help. Mm-hmm. 
Charlotte Robinson is president of the Thunder Bay Chamber of Commerce. Something different, this way comes something. Something different, something different. She blew my socks off when she answered my question about what we learned is, is essential to our success through the challenges COVID threw at local businesses. I, I was expecting something about you know, policies or funding or tracking, but she said community. Local relationships, collaborating with and supporting businesses you could consider just as competition. She said that, we have now understood better than ever, is the key to resilience and success. Another thing that really struck me in in our conversation were some of the numbers she threw out there. She said that 850 people who live in Thunder Bay are miners. And that made my mind fly back to our uh, Food Futures edition of Something Different This Way Comes when we talked to Brendan Grant. And and he did some math and figured out how many more farmers it would probably take in order to produce all the food we need, all the food we need in Thunder Bay for Thunder Bay. The number he pulled out was 750. So 850 miners in Thunder Bay, big impact on our economy, but it's only 850 of us. 750, we could all feed one another. And, and that also made me think, like, valuable as mining is and, and hard a job as it is and it earns every penny it's paid, how much do we value food? How much do we need food? How important is food security? And what could be different to better represent that in how we, how we do things around here? Just a thought. Totally where my mind went with those numbers. The other thing that she said, talking about mining, was she pointed out there's 850 jobs. People that live in Thunder Bay go to mines. Um, they have to commute to, but they're, they're in our broader region. And she said that there's about 400 small businesses in Thunder Bay that are also essential to the success of those mines. They, they support them. They service them. They supply them. 400 small businesses in the city of Thunder Bay. Talk about a, an illustration of the circles of commerce that roll out from a successful initiative, like waves from a pebble tossed into a, a pool, only they just, they just keep rolling. The other thing that really stuck with me from this conversation with Sharla is the idea that, that small businesses, like small, small businesses, Small, small businesses. And and these are just people in your neighborhood who see a need, a hole worth filling, and they dare to try and fill it. Not to get rich. Clearly, all these stories about, you know, mortgages tapped and savings dived into and commitment to your employees and, and just your heart breaking at the thought of closing your doors. These are not pictures of people that are in it for the money. They're there to serve their community, their friends, their neighbors, their their family. That is a a frontline image, experience, of Thunder Bay's business community that really stuck with me. It's, It's like evidence that the entrepreneurial spirit is at heart as a seed. It's generous and creative and determined to make it happen. Now that... To paraphrase William McDonough from, from last week's The Pen is Mightier edition of the podcast, that is a truth worth making a fulcrum that you lean into.
in order to lift this world and our community towards good things. Something different this way comes. Something different this way comes. <laughs> so I invited Ben and Sam back into this blanket fort recording studio I make of their bunk bed. I wanted to revisit a conversation that Sam and I had over breakfast this morning for you. Okay, so at breakfast this morning, we were talking about how our brains work. And I told you, Sammy, that, uh, that they call it nature blindness, that if you show somebody a picture of an elephant in the savanna, they don't even seem to notice the savanna. They say elephant. And you say, well, what else? And they're like blind to it. It really takes work to see what is the context of the elephant. And, and that's kind of what climate change is about, is saying, I want you to notice our climate. <laughs> I want you to notice what we all share and what we all are a part of and what we all rely on more and think about it more in your day-to-day -day decisions. And it's kind of training your brain, right? So anyway, that was a kind of blindness, nature blindness. And, uh, and Sammy, that made you think of another blindness? Yeah. Um, while I was just vibing on the computer, I watched this little YouTube skit where it was like, you are actually blind. Here's why. And then it showed this video of a whole bunch of people. There were like three people in white shirts and white pants and everyone else was in black. And they were all passing balls to each other and asked to count how many times the people in white passed the ball to each other and was like, you'll probably get this wrong. And then after the video ended, it said, I lied. You probably got that right. They paused it to each other 13 times. But you probably didn't notice the moonwalking bear in the background. And I was like, what? There's, there's no way. So I went back watched it again, looking for the moonwalking bear, and there it was, right in the middle of everything else that was happening, there was a person in a bear costume moonwalking in the center of everything. At the middle of the video, oh, there was a moonwalking bear, and I hadn't noticed it at all. So you really were blind. Yeah, I was like, I, I didn't see it at all. I didn't notice it at all. Ben, can you think of any ways that people can not see things, even though they're right in front of us? Yeah. Um, how about when we're on a car trip and you have trouble noticing that deer that's literally right outside the window. I point to it and you're like, where? Where? That's a thought. Hopefully I'm not the one driving at that point. <laughs> yeah. Sammy has another thought. Well, one example is when I open up the fridge specifically when I open up the fridge door and I'm looking for something even if it's right smack dab in front of my face I won't see it. I'll be like where is it? Where is it? Mom I can't find it. And you'll be like it's right there. So they say um, business people that have success have like a gift of noticing opportunities, of noticing things that their community could do with. So if you guys were like looking at our community and thinking what are people not seeing that we could do that would be good? What comes to your mind? What have you noticed? Anything? So one thing I know about Thunder Bay is 
there's a lot of like old appliances and small machinery that are just left off in a corner to rot. So I think what would be great is instead of just sending them to the junkyard to be scrapped and turned back into something, like, wouldn't it be kind of pointless if, even though it's just one part that's broken, once you have that in the junkyard, it's going to be melted down and somebody could have used that if it could have been repaired. I like the idea of, like, a reclaiming service where you can send in um, things that aren't, like, they almost work, but they have one part that you definitely can't fix, and there could be a whole business of just repairing these and reselling them. One thing that I thought is harnessing the power of water, water wheels, to get energy, it rains, and why don't we just, like, have a funnel it down and get a water wheel to spin the rain and get power that way. Why don't we get power from the rain? Little micro-generators at the end of every eaves trough. Yeah. Or even, like, in your sink, when it drains down, I've always... I Well, not always. Kind of recently, actually. But I thought that... Why don't you have water wheels there? Why don't put a water wheel anywhere you can? There are so many little spots where people don't think about it, that maybe it won't produce more energy, but will save energy. And we there are so many little places where you could, where there's energy powering something that could make more energy. Those are great ideas. Thank you, guys. You're welcome. You're welcome. Sam and Ben are my sons. They lift my heart. I mean... Sometimes we only see what we're looking for. We miss the moonwalking bear because we're so busy watching that ball like we've been told to. And that makes me think of the the power of of shifting our focus from what we want to see change and what we're told to look at to the change we want to see and the places we then choose to look. And also sometimes we don't see what is right in front of our faces. Even when we open the door and it's the only thing we're looking for inside the fridge, like Sam, (laughs) sometimes we can't see it till somebody else pokes their head over beside ours and and helps us look. (laughs) Sharla said that, that, that much of Thunder Bay was built and zoned in the 70s. And the thought was, houses over here, businesses over there. And that is an experiment that did not work. It was a failed experiment. But now we have an opportunity to do better, right? To to have the businesses and the services in every neighborhood so we can walk to them. What a transformation, as she kept saying. And we also have the opportunity to, to use the spaces we have to suit our needs as they change, to fit more people in and fit them in in the way that works for us to open our spaces to a whole wide mix of us and and make our communities more diverse and more connected. I think it's so exciting. It it also made me think of an article that I read back in February. They, They called it, the title was The City Owned by Locals, and it was about South Bend, Indiana. It's a small city that of late has a lot of not so prosperous neighborhoods and corners, kind of like Thunder Bay. But in South Bend, Indiana, 
people here and there have been connecting and starting to really transform things, to build greater prosperity and security and community. So they start the article by talking to a woman called Octavia Ray, who attended um, a learning opportunity about something called incremental development, the idea of taking something big and, and breaking it down into doable size pieces, and also to bring people together that, that have what it takes for each of those pieces. So it doesn't have to be one person who can do it all. It's, it's leveraging the power of, of collaboration and, and community. So, so what Octavia started applying this concept of incremental development to her neighborhood. She started thinking of ways to bring people together and pool resources in order to help everyday people gain ownership of businesses and properties in the neighborhood that they're tied to. Instead of relying on well-funded big business to come in and do what we need doing because they can get the finances in order. Like, like Charlotte said, a lot of small businesses, they, they don't have deep pockets. They don't have endless time. They don't have every single expertise or specialty that's needed. But they do have this superpower of, of seeing what their neighborhood needs and being able to envision exactly how to fill the holes that people are falling into or, or tripping over or, or not able to fill otherwise. So in South Bend, Indiana, their incremental development network of over 200 people has made an enormous difference in, in who owns things and how things are done and how much people kind of secure their investments not just with money and assets, but with relationships and commitments to their community. It's really, really making my head spin, like really exciting about how much more potential there is, how many seeming obstacles we actually have alternatives to and other ways of solving things. I think of Paro, right? An amazing organization that helps so many small businesses flourish and get started and, and see themselves through tough times by building community, putting together their circles, right? The, the Paro circles of, of business owners who, who lean on each other and learn from each other and, and share resources. That's a an organization that started right here, is rooted right here in Thunder Bay, and has, has grown and expanded to work in many, many communities. Talk about a, a resource and a precedent a proof that these kinds of things work. But it also made me think, again, of, of Charla's biggest takeaway from the pandemic and, and business resilience. The proof was there. The strength we need, the adaptability and the, and the resourcefulness and the resilience is in relationships, not competition, but collaboration. Friendly competition, maybe, but mostly collaboration. Finding holes, figuring out how to fill them. And she spelled out that money-back guarantee in every local purchase. I love it. I'm Heather McLeod. This was the People in Our Neighborhood edition of Something Different This Way Comes. You can find details and links to all referenced here on our website www.somethingdifferentthiswaycomes and you can sign up for my newsletter or donate to help cover the costs of making this podcast you could give the podcast a great review or just recommend it to someone that would make such a difference I love it <laughs> I have a few thank yous I'd like to thank Charlotte Robinson president of the Thunder Bay Chamber of Commerce for this conversation 
I'd like to thank my sons, Ben and Sam, for their conversation, too. I'd like to thank Leah McKay, graphic designer and an online promoter extraordinaire. And I'd like to thank you. Thank you for listening. Join me again next week for the Greener Tomorrow's edition. Something different, something different, something different. This way comes something, something different, something different, something different. This way comes something, something different, something different.